if your phone catches on fire in your pocket, that's not an issue. That's a serious problem. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, it is the end of 2016. Uh, yeah. <laughs> quite a year, quite a strange year. Uh, I think a lot of people feel the same way I do because... Did you see what the Merriam-Webster word of the year is? Yeah. Surreal. Right. A lot of surreal events in 2016. Um, I was looking at a couple of stories from wrapping up the year. I have one from the Plain English Foundation out of Australia, and I have another one, the Merriam-Webster word of the year. And I thought it'd be a good time to wrap up 2016 and talk about these two stories, about what people are saying about the state of the English language, for better or worse. I haven't looked it up in OAD, but I think surreal has changed its meaning a lot. Um, the first scholarly publication I ever had was the review of a new edition of uh, Breton's Manifestos of Surrealism. And I think, were they in English translation? I can't even remember. They might have been in French. Um, but at any rate, I was pretty saturated for a while in surrealism. And the first scholarly talk that I gave to the English department at Washington State University in 1968 was a talk on the influence of surrealism on psychedelic art Mm -hmm. and uh, album covers and underground comics and things like that. And the basic notion of surrealism was that um, by escaping from the logical and putting things in odd juxtaposition with each other, the most famous original example being a sewing machine on an operating table, which uh, seemed like it might have a purpose if you used to stitch a person up after operating on them. Um, anyway, that it would sort of jolt you out of the rigidity of logical thought and reveal some deeper meanings. Um, Breton took it in the direction of sort of Freudian psychology and the notion that somehow by uh, enforcing randomism, you could uh, get at something at the pre-logical level in the human brain. And for other people, it was just a matter of being bizarre. Mm -hmm. And Salvador Dali uh, was, of course, the most famous surrealist for the general public. Uh, and he had his own brand of it that he merchandised or marketed very successfully to the extent that Breton called him Avida Dollars, which was a sort of anagram of his name, meaning hungry for dollars. Mm -hmm. And the surrealists really thought that they were unlike the Dadaists who were sort of anti-art earlier. Uh, they really thought they were getting to something more profound Whereas surreal now has become a negative term saying reality has become so bizarre that I can't really believe that it's real. And it's um, pretty much a negative kind of term rather than a platform for art. 
Sure, yeah. You're talking about André Breton, the French writer and, right. and commentator, art critic, who wrote the Surrealist Manifesto. Yes, right. And that art movement is a kind of a specific... Psychedelia does tie into it because you're looking for juxtapositions, odd things that do not go together. You know, a lot of dolly paintings fit in that category, of course. Um, but as a word, uh, if you break it apart, the meaning of surreal, sur has the same meaning in this word as it does in the word surpass, to go over and beyond. And mm -hmm. reality, of course, is reality. Right. So in a sense... Um, the art movement, surrealism, and that sort of just strange, bizarre world um, that's depicted there still hinges on this same kind of meaning of surreal. But you're right. We've adopted this in a much more kind of mundane and commonplace. Uh, oh, that's that's surreal. Um, Webster's points out that they saw a few spikes over, through this year when the lookups increased. You know, I'm reading this thing about Merriam-Webster's lookups, and I'm wondering if they might be victims of lookup bombing. <laughs> if people are purposely logging on to Webster and entering words that are on their minds, because uh, are people really looking these words up to get their definitions? I don't know. But um, the first one was, or some of the events that were tied to it were the death of Prince uh -huh. when he died in the elevator earlier this year. They were saying that was surreal? Well, people thought that was surreal, I guess. To me, the original meaning of surreal is beyond reality. Yeah. And this seems to be more used for something that means unreality. Yes. Well, it was a surprise. I think surprise and surreal are getting connected. So it was a big surprise to hear that Prince had died. He was still quite young. Um, he was not ill. Um, in a way that when David Bowie died, at least he was a little older. Right. Um, nobody knew he had cancer, was suffering from cancer, but um, uh, at least there was a disease that was tied to it. It wasn't until weeks later that we found out that Prince's uh, drug use was associated with his death. Um, but other events were terrorist attacks in Belgium and France. The attempted coup in Turkey. Right. Um, these events that were, I guess, uh, surprising or came out of nowhere uh, seem to spark people's interest in the word surreal. The other thing about surrealism and its original thing was that the surrealists were inviting people to enter into and enjoy surrealism, whereas now it's being suggested we have been unwillingly plunged into a surreal environment, which we would be well advised to try to escape from. Yes, right, yeah. But can you guess when the biggest spike in lookups on the word surreal occurred? Election night. <laughs> That's correct. Uh, when Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton on election night in the Electoral College, that was the biggest spike in lookups on the word surreal. Yeah, I think there was supposed to have been a big uh, spike in queries about immigration to Canada, too. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, big spikes in all kinds of things being looked up. But that was their word of the year, surreal. They also had um, a few runners up that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, revenant. Now, I can understand people looking up the word revenant because it's an uncommon word. Right. 
it means one that returns after death. And that goes back to the sort of spiritualism movement, doesn't it? Um, yes, I believe so. Yeah. When I first saw the title, The Revenant, for the book and the movie, that's one of the first things I did was I went to look up, what's a revenant? Where does that word come from? Now, did you see this movie? Have you read this book? No, you know, I've kind of avoided it. It's on HBO. I understand that the acting is very good, but it sounds so grisly and unpleasant. I decided, well, I watched uh, Westworld instead. Now, I, I did uh, listen to the audiobook, The Revenant. Uh. And yes, it was grisly and unpleasant, but very gripping. And the visuals I did not need. <laughs> so I decided to stay away from the movie myself also, even though I likewise have heard the cinematography is worth the effort, I guess, if you're willing to go through the some of the violent events that happen. Yeah, it's on HBO right now, so I've had plenty of opportunities to not watch it. <laughs> yeah, 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 to avoid it. Um, people also looked up the word icon in high numbers following the death of Prince. Ah. We had a peek in lookups of the word icon. You know, icon is something I used to teach about in courses on the, the history of Christianity. Um, I won't go into all the detail of how I was doing that because I was a literature professor, but there was a, quite a conflict uh, early in Christian history when the heart of the Christian church was in what is now Turkey. And there was a huge dispute between the people who believed in uh, praying before or venerating uh, sculptures of the uh, Christ and the the saints and so on, and those who thought that that was forbidden, the Bible. After all, one of the Ten Commandments, uh, no graven images. And uh, Jews and Muslims alike observed that prohibition traditionally. Um, but in the East, they found an interesting loophole so that in the West, you still had these sculptures in the round, but in the East, they would do paintings only, icons, so that they would be flat. But then the icons would become so venerated that uh, rich people would donate silver and gold and other gems and so on to decorate the first to frame and then to outline the whole of the painting except for the face. So the lot of old precious icons is just this one hole in the middle of this super elaborate metallic surround uh, where the original face of the painted saint peeks out. So it, they got a 3D aspect to them, even though the picture was flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, well, that's interesting. Now, the other um, runner-up for uh, word of the year, according to Webster's, was a word that doesn't exist, the word bigly. <laughs> now, we talked about this before. We did, yeah. It sure sounded like Trump was saying bigly, but it turned out he was sort of sloppily saying big league. Yes, dropping that G at the end. Uh, we had a couple of other dictionaries weighing in with their word of the year. Your favorite, of course, the OED. Uh, do you remember what they chose for their word of the year? I'm afraid I didn't catch that one. Uh, Post-truth. Oh, yes, I did see that, yes. Yeah. Yeah, well... <laughs> It's really just a synonym for what Stephen Colbert dubbed truthiness way back when he first started his career on Comedy Central. 
Yeah, the OED says facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Yeah. And uh, the phrase, of course, became popular during the presidential election. The idea that we live in a post-truth society, you don't need facts anymore. Um, All you need is this appeal. And, you know, this idea has been um, swelling up over several years now. Media critics have warned us for years, Neil Postman and uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan, that the medium is becoming the message. That is becoming the truth, not the facts that are being told to us or that we are meant to understand. Well, also, there's several generations now of politicians trying to convince the public that press is not to be trusted mm-hmm. to the extent that when they rate uh, people by their trustworthiness, journalists come out extremely low. That's right. And we're also not supposed to trust politicians, which seems like a strange Mobius strip where the politicians are aiding and abetting the distrust of the press. But at the same time, they're pointing at one another and saying, well, can't trust that one. You can't trust that one. Yeah. And so everybody to get elected had to maintain that they were a non-politician or an outsider. Yes. Including Hillary Clinton, which a lot of people laughed at. Yeah. Yeah. These institutions are getting destroyed by this post-truth concept. So I think that's a pretty interesting selection by the Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, it's even scarier that there were these Eastern European and Russian sources that were um, sending out fake news stories to manipulate the election. And that really takes post-truth journalism to a whole new level that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. Yeah, and regardless of the source, whether those came from uh, wherever those come from, those uh, fake news stories that get proliferated and widespread infamously through Facebook, but uh, there's lots of other culprits involved. Uh, Now, Dictionary.com, this is also a little bit troubling. They named xenophobia their word of the year, Uh, fear or hatred of foreigners. Right. You know, that's one of those words that sophisticated people have used for a long time, but I don't think was in the popular vocabulary, particularly Um, racist is too narrow. I mean, if somebody is not of a different race, but comes from a different country and you don't like their background um, and their religious or the political views or something, then you could still be xenophobic. But it is one of those sort of learned, invented, uh, classically based terms. Mm-hmm. Very Greek. Yeah, right. Well, uh, those were the words of the year that were picked by Webster's and the OED and Dictionary.com. Uh, we had another wrap up from the Plain English Foundation. Are you familiar with the Plain English Foundation out of Australia? Uh, just slightly, yeah. Yeah. Well, every year they have to wrap up the year with their nominations for the worst words of the year or the worst usage of the year. Uh, They like to pick on corporate speak. They like to pick on uh, what they call Franken words, which are what we call in portmanteaus, uh, where you take a couple of words and put them together or a few words and stick them together. They run down their least favorite English usage for 2016, and their uh, number one pick 
for the year was Brangel Exit. <laughs> huh? Brangel Exit. That, I suppose because that's the one that has the most layers to it. Yeah. Yeah. We need to pick that apart because I saw it and I hadn't seen this word before, had you? No, but I can understand it right away when I see it. Yeah, it's easy to understand immediately. Yeah, so Brangelina, that's been Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie for as long as the tabloids have uh, tied them together. Right, and then Brexit was the term made up for Britain's leaving, exiting the EU. Mm -hmm. So when Brad and Angelina split up, then it becomes Brangelexit. Brangelexit. That's not going to last long. (laughs) <laughs> no, but it's immediately understandable. I guess it proliferated uh, on t- Twitter and uh, social media. Uh, did not spill over into the sources that I tend to look at, the other news media. But uh, I understand it immediately as a somewhat creative <laughs> sticking together of various phenomena. And doesn't bother me too much, but according to the Plain English Foundation... Uh, They say, apart from being inherently ugly, elevating celebrity divorce to the level of major world event was a poor reflection on 2016. They call it inherently ugly. Yeah, well, this wasn't the first time it's been elevated. (laughs) But I've never understood this fascination with the love lives of movie stars. I mean, what movie stars are admirable for is their ability to do things to convince you of realities that they aren't actually in in real life. I mean, Mm -hmm. if they're just being themselves, then they're failing as actors. (laughs) It's like... uh, I don't know, watching a a musician instead of going to a concert, watching him go shopping or something, or or Mm -hmm. arguing with his wife. I don't understand the appeal, but I think part of it is the notion of these are people that by all standards are successful and admirable, but look how bad off they are. And that makes me feel better about myself because I might be envious of them, but they're really screwed up. And there are some surveys that show that there's a widespread notion that being rich makes you unhappy and causes all kinds of psychological problems. And the sociological studies show that just isn't true. By and large, people who are better off financially are also happier. Yes, yes. For the rest of us, outside of the infatuation that the United Kingdom has with the uh, British royal family, seems like uh, Americans have with celebrities. That's kind of our substitute for that. And all of these things are sort of a distraction from other news that we could be reading. And I guess in some ways, if the news is very depressing and uh, ties you up in knots, in other ways, this can be an escape right. to get fascinated with these other stories. But uh, they're not news. <laughs> That's the problem. Speaking of the British royal family, have you watched The Crown? I have not. That is amazing. But, you know, it's a lavish production. It looks to have been shot inside Buckingham Palace. I can't believe they would have given him permission to do that. But it's very convincing, beautifully acted, great scripts. Even if you think that Queen Elizabeth is the most boring subject that you could ever have. I mean, this is Queen Elizabeth II. It's wonderful as drama, just as plain theater. And what it's doing is humanizing 
royalty and showing how there's this gap between the icon, to go back to an earlier word, that uh, the queen or the king has to be in order to reign but not rule over the British Empire at that time and then later over the United Kingdom. But it's showing there's this tremendous gap between real life and what she had to go through with her husband, with her sister, with her advisors, with Churchill um, on the one hand, and what she had to present to the public. Um, and it's just uh, almost agonizing to watch. I know some people have found it boring, but we found it absolutely fascinating. We've watched all 10 episodes already, and it's supposed to be continued for several more years if it catches on. Yes, well, this is the second recommendation I've had within a week to check out the crown, so maybe I should, I need to look into that. Yes, it's available streaming only from Netflix. Okay, uh, that's Brangel Exit, uh, celebrity fascination meets uh, word mangling, I guess. Um, some of these other expressions that the Plain English Foundation calls out Samson uh, with the phones that catch on fire, the Galaxy 7. Yeah. Uh, they called this a battery cell issue. <laughs> yeah, issue. That's one of my pet peeves. You know, I've, I've got it in the book. And, uh, it's become this substitute for problem. And there are very few instances in which issue in that sense is used where problem wouldn't be just as good and clearer and more common. It makes you sound smarter and sort of distances you a bit from the subject, I think. Yes. And it makes it sound like there's two sides. You know, there's an issue. Yeah. But if your phone catches on fire in your pocket, that's not an issue. That's a serious problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. The key word here is issue. Um, now, Samsung just edged out Apple, according to the Plain English Foundation, uh, Apple's phones were suddenly turning off. Have you had this issue with your phone where it just turns off? My wife does, but that's because she lets the battery run down. Well, according to Apple, if your phone shuts off unexpectedly, that is due to controlled ambient air. Really? Yes. Another iPhone 6 devices contained a battery component that was exposed to controlled ambient air longer than it should have been before being assembled into battery packs. Huh. The problem that the Plain English Foundation, they have the same problem I do with it, is what is controlled ambient air? What the heck does that mean? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So this is another call for, you know, let's have some plain English here. The problem I have with my iPhone is that the thumbprint ID doesn't work when your hands are wet. Mm. Oh, yeah. So the phone rings. I'm just cooking. I got to get some grease off my hands. Wash them quick. Yeah, wash them and dry them. Try to get the phone open. I wind up having to put in my passcode instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, the other problem is that I love my iPhone for everything except being a phone. <laughs> People always saying, um, I'm having trouble hearing you. Would you please repeat that? Well, you cannot necessarily blame your phone on these things. There are cell towers involved and other problems that could come up in your cell connection. It's a better camera than a phone, though. 
<laughs> yeah, probably is true. Yeah, well, I think we've come to the point where we are tolerating phone connections uh, in a way that we wouldn't have been doing 20 years ago, um, just for the convenience of carrying your phone around in your pocket all day long. Right. But I can understand these corporate spin language complaints from the Plain English Foundation a little bit better than I can understand their gripe about Branch Alexa, which to me is just a funny, uh, somewhat creative combination of some some words that are out there in the news. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting in a way that people put that together. Um, Another one that they put under their corporate spin label is uh, disestablished. Have you heard this? No. Well, it's related to job cuts. So uh, there was a New Zealand university that explained it is proposed that 16.28 full-time equivalent staff are disestablished. <laughs> so you don't establish people when you hire them; you establish a job. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm sure that's the gripe. But what this reminds me of is the old line in the 1950s when I was a kid about the longest word in the English language being anti-disestablishmentarianism, which had to do with taking a position on whether uh, the Church of England should be separated from the government. (laughs) Yes, right, right. That was kind of a bogus word that didn't really exist. Yeah, and... There are all kinds of euphemisms for, uh, well, what the British might say, sacking people, um, firing people, getting rid of jobs, job cuts. Corporations, uh, any institution will look for anything to say other than you're being released. They seem to want to find all kinds of of uh, other language for that. And uh, the one that has always struck me as very odd is the Brits say redundant uh, when they mean fired, somebody's been made redundant. And uh, the usual meaning of redundant is that you're getting rid of something because it's unnecessary, because you've got another one just like it, or you got a better one, and there's no need for it anymore. Whereas people can be fired for all kinds of reasons uh, that have to do with, say, financial considerations, or because they were behaving badly or, or whatever. Uh, but the term redundant took on this very narrow, odd meaning in England. I don't think it ever got imported into the U.S., though. Right. Uh, but the Plain English Foundation did call out Uber for claiming it did not actually employ anyone, so it would deactivate drivers that it no longer wanted. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, that's a scary sounding. Yes. And uh, judges scolded the company for twisted language and ruled that Uber drivers should receive the national living wage. Well, how about that? Yeah, I can see how um, disestablished might have been spun off of made redundant, though, because they're very linked in this way. The undoing something that was established before. Whereas, of course, uh, now we have a president whose most famous expression is, you're fired. Yes, right. Yep. The other um, corporate spin that they were calling out was temporary volume dislocation. (laughs) Now, what are they talking about? (laughs) So they say when baby formula business Bellamy's Australia hit some problems with Chinese regulators, 
its sales and share prices plummeted. The company Spin noted it was simply experiencing a temporary volume dislocation. <laughs> Jeez. Well, that's a drop in sales. <laughs> to me, it sounds like shoplifting. <laughs> yeah, temporary volume dislocation. Well, note that one, and uh, let's drop that usage for 2017. That's really bizarre. New English Foundation also uh, has some other categories. They have euphemisms. They have buzzwords and business jargon and mixed metaphors. Lots to talk about uh, the current state of English usage, but uh, let's keep that for next time, and we'll talk again in 2017. Okay. All right. Thank you, Paul. So long. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.